Welcome to this Touch podcast activity, which has been recorded for Touch Oncology. In this podcast, three internationally renowned multiple myeloma experts share insights into the unmet treatment needs for patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. The rationale for emerging protein degradation and immunomodulation-based therapies and the latest data and ongoing clinical trials for these investigational agents. This activity is funded by an independent medical education grant from Bristol Myers Squibb and is jointly provided by USF Health and Touch IME. In our first interview, Professor Cristina Gasparetto considers the ongoing unmet treatment needs for patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. Hi, my name is uh, Cristina Gasparetto. I'm uh, a professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center, and I'm actually leading the myeloma program uh, here at Duke for many years. How prevalent is multiple myeloma today, and what is the outlook for patients? Myeloma is the second most common black cancer after lymphoma, and uh, the incidence of myeloma, the prevalence increases with age, uh, is a little bit more common in men than women and uh, African-American, in the African-American populations. So just in the U.S. in 2023, uh, we had uh, almost shy of 36,000 new cases uh, diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and unfortunately we still lose uh, uh, approximately uh, 12,000 every year. The uh, survival, the projected survival for patients with myeloma, uh, if we look at the data of uh, some of the uh, registry data, is about uh, 60% of five years relative survival. But this is, of course, uh, uh, increasing with the introduction of some of the new targeted therapies, some of the new agents. Um, one of the reasons why uh, myeloma remains an incurable disease uh, because the heterogeneity of the disease, uh, the, the, the heterogeneity of the clone, uh, the majority of patients uh, will uh, um, start for, from a more indolent uh, phase and then evolve uh, to what we call the active myeloma. And for a lot of patients, we don't know the duration uh, between the timing, between uh, smoldering an active myeloma. When they develop the active myeloma and we initiate a therapy, unfortunately, the clone goes through evolution and uh, uh, very quickly patients will become resistant, refractory to therapy, and eventually um, they are not responding. Uh, so we have uh, uh, we are able to control the disease for a period of time, particularly in the newly diagnosed setting, but then uh, with uh, uh, time, uh, with multiple relapses, unfortunately, myeloma eventually becomes resistant, refractory to therapy. And that's the reason why uh, uh, we need to, to do more to avoid uh, these, uh, the development of resistance and refractoriness of this disease. How has the treatment landscape for relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma evolved over time? 
when I started, uh, we only had chemotherapy available uh, and chemotherapy could have been given at low dosage, uh, uh, intermediate dose, and then we had the introduction of the high dose uh, in the 80s. So the first chemotherapy for myeloma was actually introduced in the late 60s, the malphalan given in combination with prednisone. Then uh, from the 70s in the 80s, uh, many more cumbersome combination of chemotherapy were used to treat patients with myeloma. Then we had the introduction of the IDOS chemotherapy with the autologous transplant. And, and we saw for the first time an improvement in survival. We attempted allogeneic transplant that remain very difficult to justify because uh, uh, the high transplant-related mortality in this population of patients. And then from the beginning of 2000 until now, we had the explosion of new therapies from the imids, the proteasome inhibitor, and then the monoclonal antibodies, and then more recently, the immunotherapy with the CAR T cell, the bispecific antibodies. So, and that's one of the reasons why the survival of patients with myeloma is improving. It's definitely improving, but is not, we're not done yet. What are the limitations of current therapies for the treatment of relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma? Do you know, when I, I treat a patient with myeloma, I have to take in account many factors. First of all, the age, the presence of other medical issues that the patient might have uh, able to tolerate therapy. So when we choose uh, a strategy, a treatment uh, for a newly diagnosed patient, for instance, we want to go very aggressive because we learned that the combination of uh, many agents with different mechanisms of action is impacting on the disease. However, you know, there are so many patients that we will not be able to tolerate uh, this complex, the quadruplet, this combination, because the age, the frailty, uh, other comorbidity, as, as I mentioned. So, uh, of course, we have to monitor patients uh, for possible toxicity, side effect. And a lot of time we tend to deliver a suboptimal uh, regimen because of that. And that's, to me, is one of the biggest limitations. If you look at the overall survival of older patients compared to the younger population, older patients, you know, the survival is shorter and there is no difference in the biology of their disease, but the survival is shorter because we don't deliver in the same way because some of these patients do not have the capability of sustained therapy for a prolonged period of time because cumulative toxicity. And so we tend to adjust therapy and lose some of the effectiveness. So definitely that is one big limitation. And then logistically, you know, when uh, we uh, ask a patient to come to our uh, office multiple times uh, to receive administration of cumbersome drugs, so we have to take that in account. Uh, you know, are they capable to come uh, once, twice a week uh, for administration? Uh, and, uh, and then... Uh, 
uh, you know, one of the most important factors when we choose a therapy right now is also uh, the proper risk stratification, uh, how we're going to treat, and I hope this is going to happen over the next uh, few years, how we're going to treat patients is going to be a little bit different based on the, the genetic of their disease. So we do have a lot of limitations, how to deliver treatment, how to adjust, how to manage toxicity, choosing the best treatment for different type of patients, and then taking account, you know, logistically, you know, how much are we going to affect their quality of life? If they spend all their time with us, we kind of lose in quality of life. So patients in the newly diagnosed, we can at time be aggressive. Uh, we have uh, we use uh, a combination of four drugs to control the myeloma. Later on, we kind of lose uh, uh, the capability of uh, uh, being extremely aggressive with some of our patients because they become more uh, frail. We lose in toxicity in quality of life, and in fact, it becomes more difficult to. To treat patients uh, uh, after two, three, four lines of therapy and uh, the sustainability of the therapy. And unfortunately, the, the nature or the natural course of the myeloma, if we look at uh, uh, patients uh, who have been exposed to two drugs, two, three drugs, or so the triple class refractory, their projected uh, overall survival and durability of response is uh, decreasing compared to the newly diagnosed, in fact, uh, projected survival for a triple class refractory based on uh, some uh, real world uh, uh, outcomes for patients uh, with uh, um, relapsed disease is shy of one year. Uh, the survival becomes uh, shorter, uh, limited uh, because uh, the, um, the aggressiveness of the disease locomotion, uh, which was the first prospective non-interventional multinational study where patients with uh, uh, double, triple class refractory were followed uh, longitudinally. And it was uh, very disappointing to see that the overall response uh, was not even one third of the patient. The durability of response was uh, uh, four to five months uh, with a median progression-free survival of 3.9 months. And the, and the overall survival for these patients uh, with double and triple class refractory disease, uh, not even one year, shy of one year. So um, I really need, uh, we need to focus on uh, uh, this population of patients. It's clear that when the myeloma becomes uh, uh, more uh, advanced, uh, refractory to the initial therapy, we're dealing uh, with uh, more aggressive uh, disease, uh, and we need uh, to um, implement what we've learned over the last two decades and focus in, in, on this particular population of patients. What do you think are the remaining unmet needs surrounding treatment options in relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma? So I think uh, to improve uh, the um, 
outcome of patients in the relapse refractory setting. We need to improve the outcome of the newly diagnosed, and we need to understand that uh, patients with myeloma have different diseases, and we can treat all of them in the same way. So more understanding of uh, the biology of the disease, uh, uh, more understanding of the mechanism of action of these and how we can sequence all this therapy in the best way to impact on each individual patient. And uh, I feel like, and I've been uh, in this field now for over 20 years, that it's easy for us to treat patients with myeloma all in the same way. And I don't think we can do that anymore. And that is a very important uh, uh, med need, in my opinion. We need to uh, treat patients differently based on the type of myeloma. And I think if we do that, we're going to impact on the overall outcome. Thank you for sharing your insights, Professor Gasparetto. Now let's hear from Professor Sagar Lonial to find out about the rationale for investigational protein degradation and immunomodulatory approaches in the treatment of multiple myeloma. I'm Dr. Sagar Lonial. I'm Professor and Chair in the Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology and the Chief Medical Officer for the Winship Cancer Institute of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Why are protein degradation and immunomodulatory approaches being trialed in multiple myeloma? Protein degradation and immunomodulation are really almost critical backbones of treatment for patients with multiple myeloma. And this is a really interesting piece because if you looked at gene expression or you looked at mutations, one would never come up with a target like Cerebron, which is often the putative target here, as a target in the context of myeloma. But what we know, for instance, is that binding of cerebron uh, or activation of cerebron itself has many significant activities that are important and critical for myeloma cell survival, working through the ubiquitin proteasome system, as well as managing protein degradation and protein overload in the context of a cell that makes loads and loads of immunoglobulin. Furthermore, we know that the downstream proteins of cerebron, including Icarus and Ialios, are critical survival factors for myeloma cells, and thus anything that can impact their expression or their levels can have a pro-apoptotic effect. When we think about targeting the UPS system, it is important to recognize, however, that the cell does have compensatory mechanisms to get around those processes many of which historically have been thought to be mediated through proteins like HDAC6. And so while it's important that we target this system for myeloma cell survival or ultimately inducing death, recognizing that not all cells are as dependent on the UPS and proteasome inhibitors, a major agent that we use to target the UPS, also has significant downstream on and off target effects, including potentially neuropathy, or cardiovascular complications. What is the rationale for using degradation-activating compounds in the treatment of multiple myeloma? When we think about using degradation-activating compounds for patients with multiple myeloma, there really are a, is a two-fold approach to doing this. There is the proteolysis-targeting chimeric approach, where the protein, again, acts as a bridge between the E3 ligase and the target protein, to induce ultimate polyubiquitination, which leads to proteasome-mediated degradation. 
And this is one approach that I think is certainly very interesting and does allow us to broaden the potential applicability of this target or this approach to many different uh, protein uh, within the cell. The more commonly used approach in the context of multiple myeloma is the monofunctional degrader or the molecular glue. And in this context, what really happens is the binding uh, to cerebellin E3 ligase, which then ultimately modulates the surface interaction binding proteins such as Icarose and Ialeose, leading them ultimately to proteosomal degradation. This is clearly a validated pathway in the context of multiple myeloma and is a pathway that I think we're very excited about, have depended on for a number of years, and with newer agents in this class, we'll clearly see benefits both in terms of efficacy and hopefully improved safety. How do Cerebron E3 ligase modulators target protein degradation in multiple myeloma? When we think about Cerebron E3 ligase modulators, what we're trying to understand is what do they do and are they doing it differently in terms of directly binding Cerebron? And as an example, we know that there are original uh, agents in this class, such as thalidomide or lenalidomide or pomalidomide, and they bind Cerebron, ultimately binding Icarose and Ialeos, resulting in rapid downstream degradation of those two target proteins. But we also know that the binding affinity may vary based on the product. And so what we think about with the newer class of agents, and this includes agents such as ibertamide and mesigdamide, is that they bind with a higher potency and have differential effects on the downstream binders of these E3 ligases, such that the speed of degradation may be faster or the other downstream targets may be different, allowing for subtle differences in the ultimate efficacy of these agents. Now, this is really important as we think about the new agents, ibertamide and mesigdamide, because while they do have a similar mechanism in that they bind cerebron, the fact that they have been engineered to bind with different potency and have impact on different downstream targets besides Icarus and Ialeos is really important because it does allow these new agents more pro-immune effects. And what I mean by that is more NK cell activation and T cell activation as a consequence of high levels of IL-2 secretion by cells within the immune system. The potential advantage of this is that they make better partners for immune agents, including monoclonal antibodies, bispecific antibodies, or even CAR T cells. And at the same time, because their binding affinity and speed of degradation is different, the adverse event profile may be different than we see with some of the original parent compounds in a similar class. And this means, at least in my experience, that agents such as ibertamide have a much different safety profile, seem to be better tolerated than some of the early generation agents, and in fact, agents such as mesigdamide may have differential penetration effects that really differentiate both of these two from their early predecessors. How do you think protein degradation and immunomodulatory agents in development for patients with multiple myeloma will impact future clinical practice? When I begin to think about how these uh, new agents, particularly ibertamide and mesigdamide, will have an impact down the road, I think about their use in this era of immune therapy. 
And so I like to specifically think about managing patients who are receiving either biospecifics or CAR T cells, using them either in partnership or perhaps as salvage therapy after early progression in that context. We know that agents such as mesigdomide have better tissue penetration than many of the other drugs in these classes. And for that reason, their activity in the context of extramedullary disease is superior to what we've seen for other drugs that target cerebellum. And we know that there are hints that these drugs are highly effective in high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. And so when you put that together with the fact that many of these agents really are oral, uh, they're easily bioavailable, uh, they are potentially usable in older or frail patients, and I think will be good to move earlier in the treatment pathway, whether it's as part of induction therapy or maintenance therapy or even smoldering myeloma, these agents, I think, do broaden the potential applicability of agents that target cerebellum and the downstream effects, both in terms of their anti-myeloma effects as well as their pro-immune effects. Thank you for that excellent summary, Professor Lunial. Finally, let's talk to Professor Sundar Jagannath for an update on the latest data and ongoing trials for these investigational protein degradation and immunomodulatory approaches. I am Professor Sundar Jagannath. I'm the director of the Center of Excellence for Multiple Myeloma at Tisch Cancer Institute, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. What are the latest clinical trial data and ongoing clinical trials for iberdamide? I'm really excited to talk about a new immunomodulatory molecule, iberdomide. Um, it is known as CC220 as it was going through the clinical trial. This was a multi-cohort, open-label, phase 1b slash 2a study of iberdomide as a monotherapy and in combination with dexamethasone. During the phase 1, there were 90 patients call, going through the dose escalation phase, and it ranged, the doses were ranged from 0.3 to 1.6 milligram orally, and it is given once a day for 21 out of 28 days, and dexamethasone once per week. The outcome was the recommended phase 2 dose was 1.6 milligram for iberdomide. In the phase 2 dose expansion, 107 patients participated. They all had to have at least three previous lines of therapy and had triple class refractory disease. Uh, you know, they had to be refractory, exposed to and refractory to an imid, a proteasome inhibitor, and daratumumab or anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. The overall response rate was 26% in this triple class refractory patient. And the grade three or greater treatment emergent adverse events of more than 20% were mainly hematologic, neutropenia, anemia, thrombocytopenia, and leukopenia, and of course, because of that, some infection. The serious treatment emergent adverse events was noted in 53% of the patients. There were a cohort of prior BCMA exposed, the BCMA antibody therapy exposed patient, and in that cohort, the overall response rate was 36.8%. And here, again, the treatment emergent uh, grade 3, 4 uh, side effects were pretty much the same. A number of trials are ongoing with iberdomide in patients with multiple myeloma in different phases. There is a phase three trial called Excalibur in relapsed refraction multiple myeloma. This is a randomized trial comparing iberdomide, daratumumab, and dexamethasone 
versus daratumumab, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. The primary endpoint is progression-free survival, and the patient should have received one or two prior lines of antimyeloma therapy. There are a number of phase one and two trials in which they have combined ibodomide with different agents. There is ibodomide and ilotuzumab and dexamethasone, ibodomide, carfilzomib, daratumumab, and dexamethasone, ibodomide as a maintenance therapy following autotransplant, either upfront, the patients who had not received um, VGPR or better after exposure to lenalidomide, or in sa following salvage autotransplant with melphalan 200 milligram per meter square. It is also in combination with servostomab, which is a bispecific antibody directed. Servostomab is a bispecific antibody directed against FCRH5 expressed on plasma cells and anti CD3. And then there is EOS884448, which is an anti TIGIT antibody either alone or in combination with ibodomide with or without dexamethasone. What are the latest clinical trial data and ongoing trials for mesigdomide? CC92480MM001 trial. This is an open-label multicenter phase 1-2 study of mesigdomide as monotherapy and in combination with dexamethasone. The phase 1 dose escalation enrolled 77 patients. And the primary outcome was the recommended phase two dose was one milligram daily in combination with once a week dexamethasone for 21 out of 28 days. Most common grade three, four adverse events were neutropenia, infection, and anemia, mainly hematologic. In the phase two dose expansion cohort, 101 patients were treated. These were triple class refractory patients 30% had previous anti-BCMA therapy and 40% had plasma cytomas. These are highly treated and refractory patients. One milligram mesigdomide daily with dexamethasone once weekly for 21 out of 28 days was given to these patients. And the overall response rate was 41%. The median duration of response was 7.6 months and the median progression-free survival was 4.4 months. Again, the most common grade 3-4 adverse events were hematologic, neutropenia, infection, and anemia. CC92480MM002 trial. This is an ongoing phase 1-2 study to determine safety and preliminary efficacy of mesigdomide in combination with standard treatments. Patients should have had 2 to 4 prior lines of therapy, a minimal response or better to at least one prior regimen, and disease progression during or after the last line of therapy with the ECOG performance status of 0 to 2. Mesigdomide, daratumumab, and dexamethasone was given to 56 patients in escalating doses in three sub-cohorts. The primary outcome was overall response rate of 78%, and of course it varied according to the uh, cohorts. And most common grade 3, 4 treatment emergent adverse events were, again, predominantly hematologic, neutropenia, anemia, and infection. Low non-hematologic grade 3, 4 treatment emergent adverse events. The mesigdomide plus ilotuzumab and dexamethasone has reported on 20 patients. The escalating doses of mesigdomide day 1 to 21 for 28 days cycle. 
the primary outcome overall response rate of 45%. And again, most common grade three, four treatment emergent adverse events were neutropenia, anemia, and infection with very low non-hematologic grade three, four treatment emergent adverse events. Other ongoing mesenchymal clinical trials in patients with multiple myeloma include a phase three trial called Successor One. This is a randomization of mesenchymal, bortezomib, dexamethasone versus pomalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. And the primary endpoint is progression-free survival in patients who had received one to three prior lines of antimyeloma therapy. There is a, another phase three trial, Successor Two, this is a randomization between mesenchymal, carfilzomib, dexamethasone versus carfilzomib and dexamethasone. Prior treatment with lenalidomide and at least two cycles of an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody exposure is required. And again, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. The other phase one, two exploratory clinical trial looks at the combination of mesenchymal with standard of treatment, mesenchymal in combination with elotuzumab and dexamethasone, ixazomib and dexamethasone, and also mesenchymide and dexamethasone post-CAR T-cell therapy with idacel, and finally, mesenchymide in novel therapeutic combinations. What are the latest clinical trial data and ongoing trials for CFT7455? This is another cerebron binding agent and an important immunomodulatory drug. And in the phase, there is a phase one trial which is ongoing and they are arm A, they are doing CFT7455 at different dosing schedule to find out the recommended phase two dose. And in arm B1, escalating doses of this drug in different dosing schedules. And in arm B2, this drug at a fixed dose in combination with dexamethasone in each cohort. There is a phase two portion, ARM1, just the CFT7455 at recommended phase two dose, and ARM2 is CFT7455 in combination with dexamethasone. And the primary outcomes are the same as for usual phase one studies, the safety and tolerability and maximum tolerated dose and recommended phase two dose. And for phase two, you know, the overall response rate, either alone or in combination with dexamethasone. Again, the key inclusion criteria was a patient with multiple myeloma having received three prior anti-myeloma regimen, including two consecutive cycles of lenalidomide, omelidomide, a proteasome inhibitor, a glucocorticoid, and or anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody. Patient should be refractory CFT7455 phase one dose escalation data. Monotherapy, 22 patients had completed it. It is a 14 days on and 14 days off schedule. 75 microgram daily was maximum dose administered. Most common grade three or greater adverse events was predominantly neutropenia. No dose limiting toxicity resulted in discontinuation. All four patients receiving 75 microgram achieved stable disease or better. And clinical evidence of immune T cell activation at doses below the maximum administered dose. CFT7455 in combination with dexamethasone, preliminary results only on nine patients were shared. It is still uh, currently recruiting patients. The dosing and schedule include 50 microgram of CFT7455 Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 
than 37.5 microgram once a day or 6 to 2.5 microgram once a day for 14 days on and 14 days off schedule. And all of them with dexamethasone 40 milligram once weekly. Most common grade three or greater adverse events were hematologic, anemia, neutropenia, and febrile neutropenia. This combination of CFT7455 with dexamethasone shows promising results at low doses, including best responses in patients who are refractory to BCMA-targeted therapies. CFT7455 plus dexamethasone is well-tolerated with manageable neutropenia. What are the key points for clinicians to be aware of when referring patients with relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma to clinical trials? This is a wonderful time. There are a number of exciting molecules are in clinical trials, so it is important for patients to participate in clinical trials so you, we can cure multiple myeloma within the next 10 years. But obviously, there are limitations to enrollment because multiple myeloma often occurs in elderly patients with comorbidities, and myeloma also causes a renal impairment. And along with coronary artery disease, etc., in this elderly population, there is a limitation for patient eligibility. 40% of newly diagnosed multiple myeloma in the Connect MM registry were ineligible for randomized clinical trials. Approximately 72.3% of relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients in routine care didn't meet eligibility criteria for one of the six Hallmark's randomized clinical trial. Then comes the patient circumstances. When a community oncologist wants to refer a patient to a center which is at certain distance to, in order to participate in a clinical trial, the distance or the patient becomes sometimes insurmountable, especially for elderly patients to go back and forth, ability to travel, and their support network. And also, it depends upon the design of the clinical trial, how frequently they have to have the appointments, and whether this entails any hospitalization, and how they will be taken care of in case of any side effects are encountered. NCCN encourages any patient with cancer to participate in a clinical trial. But uh, in myeloma, because there have been several new drugs coming in, and many of the drugs are going through um, being approved drugs are going through an earlier phases of clinical trial to be incorporated early in the disease. The patients are also segmented. You'll have to know whether the patient is newly diagnosed, there are certain clinical trials they are eligible, then you have to have, have one to three prior lines of therapy, whether they have been exposed to a prodisome inhibitor, immunomodulatory molecule, anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, now additional um, exposure to bispecific antibodies against BCMA or CAR T-cell therapy directed against BCMA, all of that are coming into the mix. Thank you for listening to this Touch podcast. You can access more content on this and related topics on Touch Oncology at www.touchoncology.com. Mm-hmm.